Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 268. I am your host. Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, gone the run up to Christmas there. <laughs> Mind you, it's been the run up to Christmas in our house since November, just after Guy Fawkes night. So about November the 7th, we we'll the bloody decorations up. So... It's a madhouse, and we've got a, a little new addition to the to the Smith clan. There, he's called Ralph. He's a, he's about eight weeks old now, a cocker spaniel. To go with the two bloody Dobermans, we got how can we just picked opposite dogs? Well, my, he's a little rip, and like I say, tinsel everywhere. Well, anyway, anyway, look at grit <laughs> meat teeth in your bed. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear as well out there. Hailstone and hailstone and hellish bad out there. So, what's coming to this show? We have movie soundtracks by David Raiklin. Then we have the main fiction, which is Jeff Carlson, Topsider. And we've got a little interview with the band himself, Jeff, as well, at the end of the show. So that is Starship's about 268. Just before we get into the show, just to kind of give you reminders, is don't forget that you can get in touch with me, Starship's at gmail.com. But also, you know, the, the Twitter and the Facebook. And I've also noticed now, I'm just about to set up a, a Google Starship Sofa's community. I think on Google, now you can do this Google Plus thing. You can do like a community over there as well. And I'll be putting, because it's always nice now. I've got some great little pictures done by Scott for the fact articles. And I'm now like releasing a few days beforehand, you know, just giving it like a heads up what fact articles coming in the show. And just, I'm trying to fill it with images and stuff like that. So that'll be a place to go as well, the Google community, if you want to kind of be involved and kind of chat away on there, please do. So we'll get into the first kickoff today is Movie Soundtracks. David, sir. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Sci-Fi Soundtrack. This is where we explore the expanding universe of science fiction, music, sound effects, and the amazing stories and creative people behind the scenes. I'm your host, David Raiklin. Thanks to Tony for making the show possible. We're glad to be aboard the Starship. This time, we're going epic. Epic as in over 10 hours of music for a gigantic ensemble, over 200 musicians, including an extra-large symphony orchestra, a chorus, plus a children's chorus, ethnic instruments from all around the world, including, but not limited to, Celtic harp, hardanger fiddle, monochord, sarangi, dulubra. These are unique kinds of sounds, as well as gigantic and magnificent ones. There are over 20 instrumental and vocal soloists, including stars from the classical and pop world. The project was awarded with two Academy Awards for Best Score, plus 
an Oscar for Best Song. It's performed all around the world in concert, in addition to the film experience. And by now, you may have guessed that we're talking about that great modern trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, that now has a new installment, The Hobbit, that will be uh, probably in theaters at the time that you're listening to this broadcast. So, yes, let's start with a survey of the musical world of The Lord of the Rings and also include excerpts from the brand new online released The Hobbit. Let's take a look at how all of this amazing music is organized. The darkly magnificent score maintains an aura of magic and high fantasy throughout, organized around about 20-25 basic character themes or leitmotifs for different places and people, although there are often variations on each of these that become their own separate theme. We're not going to have time to survey all of these themes, but let's start with the beginning, the first cue from the Fellowship of the Ring, the prophecy. The very first music we hear in The Fellowship of the Ring from The Lord of the Rings Epic Trilogy, music by Howard Shore. The theme of that cue and whenever we hear or see the Elvish peoples is the Elves themes or the Lothoran theme. It makes perfect sense because the introduction to the film is a narrated history and the narrator is Galadriel, brilliantly portrayed by Kate Blanchett. So, because an elf is speaking, we hear elfish music, but it's been uh, transformed to have an aura of both mystery and of dark drama, since there are awful events that she's uh, retelling. This is kind of how the leitmotif or character theme system works. Each character or place or idea has a musical phrase or a whole melody, but the way that melody is transformed, varied, orchestrated, given nuance varies depending on the action. So there can be a happy version, a sad version, an epic version, an intimate version. Now, after we hear the introduction, see the introduction, we move to the Shire. And this is where the hobbits live. And there is Shire music, which is also kind of synonymous with the hobbits. So that's the next thing we'll hear. The music for the Shire and the hobbits is pastoral, gentle, has a, a kind of village folk-like quality, although it can get quite grand when it's done in full orchestra. Later in this excerpt, you'll also hear a version using ethnic pipes, uh, little wooden flutes that uh, sound very folksy and homemade. The Shire. The Shire. 
a character theme from Lord of the Rings, music by Howard Shore. Now from the bucolic Shire to the evil land of Mordor, surrounded by volcanoes and the dwelling place of Sauron, the titular Lord of the Rings. This music is aggressive dissonance, lots of brass and percussion. There's a, a roiling quality of uh, incessant evil activity going on throughout the entire orchestra as a, a kind of undercurrent. Very much the style for conflict and battles and all of the evil minions who are under the sway of the evil power of the ring. Here it is, Mordor. Music from Lord of the Rings, played by the London Philharmonic Orchestra and the London Voices. Next, let's listen to the character theme for Gondor. This is the land of good, the empire of men that is the most positive and successful, although at the time of the events in Lord of the Rings, it's fallen into hard times and has to be revived through the efforts of Gandalf and the Hobbits. The music here is heroic and uplifting, yet tinged with sadness and clouded with uncertainty. There's a great skill in creating that sense of, of former glory and perhaps greatness to come, but right now, not so much. Part of this is achieved through the orchestration in this variation, where the melody is played by a solo horn with orchestral accompaniment. Theme music for Gondor, a kingdom of men from The Lord of the Rings. Now let's move to a specific character, one of my favorite heroes from the whole series, Gandalf, the great wizard. He actually has a couple of different themes, but my favorite version is the one where he's riding to the rescue on horseback, and it's called The White Rider. And it has a, a transcendent choral quality that makes you think more of magic and mystery rather than uh, heroic action and adventure. And that sort of befits the character, where he's uh, more about the spiritual quest and the physical heroism is just a necessity in order to set things right.
the White Rider, music for Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Now let's turn to the ring itself. The ring has different themes, and this is perhaps the most frequently used one and the coolest. It's called the history of the ring, or the power of the ring. And you might expect it to be violent, big and powerful, like the actions and effects of the ring's power. But instead, it's sinister and sinuous. This is a unexpected and almost mournful kind of tune that somehow perfectly evokes the ring. The History of the Ring, from The Lord of the Rings, music by Howard Shore. Now let's turn to one of the most famous literary and cinematic characters of all, the Gollum, played with an unforgettable CGI alter ego by Andy Serkis. This character is of many natures, and there is no one single theme for him, but one of the most musical and popular is Gollum's song. You'll hear the tune first in the orchestra, and then sung by Emiliana Torini. Lyrics by Fran Walsh, who's married to Peter Jackson, and Tolkien. Gollum song. song. Music by Howard Shore, lyrics by Fran Walsh, sung by Emiliana Torini. All music from Lord of the Rings. Next to perhaps the best known, most famous character theme, it's for the Fellowship itself. The Fellowship theme, stated in bold brass and strings. It's a all-time fantasy epic classic. The Fellowship theme, perhaps the best-known theme from The Lord of the Rings. Now let's turn to the new film, The Hobbit, that's probably in theaters right now, in 3D. At least that's how I want to see it. It's got a soundtrack equally epic to the three previous films, and this time we actually get a preview of the soundtrack. It's been online now for a few days, and I'm going to share with you the very first track, or at least a part of it, 
from The Hobbit. It's called My Dear Frodo, and it opens with a new theme that we have not heard before, and that's entirely fitting. In addition to the unexpected journey theme, there's the classic themes from the previous trilogy, and if you're familiar with the music of The Lord of the Rings, you can hear the character theme for Gandalf, The Hobbits, other characters. You can tell what's happening, whether things are being paced fast or slow, whether they're in danger, by the variations in the orchestration. So if you're familiar with musical storytelling, you can actually listen to these excerpts from the soundtrack and figure out what's going on in the movie. But we won't give you any spoilers. We'll just give you a wonderful excerpt from The Hobbit. Shore speaking live about the role of music in Lord of the Rings. That's it for Science Fiction Soundtrack this week. We'll be back next time. We do take requests, so tell us your favorite science fiction, fantasy, video game, TV soundtracks, and we will play it for you. And I'll find out the inside scoop so you know why it's magic. Connect on Facebook and see what we're up to next. D-A-V-I-D dot R-A-I-K-L-E-N. Contact me. David Raikland at cinematicmusic1 at gmail.com. Music and interviews copyright their respective owners. What can I say, David? It's been too long. And I'll tell you why it's been too long. I've already got the next one of David's fact article as well. So I've got that booked in for sometime in January. So, David, thank you so much. Next up is Topsider by Jeff Carlson. Now, I'm not going to tell you anything about Topsider. What I'll do is we'll have a little, I'm going to have a little chat with Jeff, a little interview later on tonight. And I'm recording this on, let's get me in my head here, it's Monday. So I'm going to record it, and I, all I'll use all my questions, you know, in the interview instead of reading them out. So I'm going to have a little chat with Jeff after this story. This story is narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Now, Amy narrated Frozen Sky, which was oodles ago, but it's done a, a few for Jeff as well. Jeff just fell in love with it, and, and everyone does with Amy's voice. You know, it's just got that kind of critical voice, just that kind of angst teenager girl, you know what I mean? Just like great stuff. So, Amy, thank you so much for this. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Topsider 
by Jeff Carlson. There was only one survivor. They pulled her from the ice after four days alone in the dark, coated with blood and dust, her suit damaged at its knee, chest, gloves, and helmet. The rock dust and frozen water vapor encrusted on her armor were extraterrestrial. So was the organic tissue. It belonged to Europa's sunfish. The blood inside the crippled suit was her own. You can't delete him, Vani said from her hospital cot, trying to sit up. Administrator Kubsch shook his head. We'll leave most of the files intact. I owe him my life. If you erase his personality, your AI is badly corrupted. That's not his fault. It's mine. Vani's hand throbbed as she held a comm visor near her face, allowing them to see each other. Her cot was in a separate structure from Kubsch's command module. Fresh muscle grafts on her temple and cheek kept her from using the visor properly. But her hand wasn't much better off. Five bones in her fingers and wrist had been set with glue, and that was her good hand, her right hand. Her left was a swollen club. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been such a struggle to sit up. As Vani rose, her blanket fell away, leaving her naked above the waist. By trade, astronauts could not be body-conscious in their perpetually crowded living quarters. Maybe she let the visor dip to her breasts and bandaged shoulder on purpose. Kubj was a politician. If he was agitated by her body, it might rattle him enough to listen. Despite her injuries, Vani was lean and well-toned, with clear skin and a long, slender belly. Let me help, she said. We can copy the files you want, then isolate them. That's what we're doing. But don't delete the rest. Lam was a Chinese national. Human-based AIs aren't illegal in his country. I know we can't send him back to them. He knows too much. But we can give him sanctuary with us. It would be wrong to strip him down to pure data. I disagree. Kubsch was forty-eight, blonde, and earthborn like Vani. Unlike Vani, he'd arrived on one of the high-G launches five days ago. He had yet to adapt to low gravity. His face was always flushed. Vani wasn't sure if she'd embarrassed Kubsch, so she tried again. You're afraid of him, she said. I get it. You don't need any legal problems on top of running our operation. But Lam is a proven resource. He's the only one who's communicated with the sunfish. The sunfish are a separate matter, Kubsch said. Like everyone in the ESA crew, he'd adopted her name for the Europans. Her experience had been too sensational. The media loved everything about her odyssey. And, according to the news feeds she'd seen in the past day, most people were using the term sunfish across the solar system. Her fame gave her leverage. The sunfish are the only thing that matters, she said, but Kubsch wouldn't let her change the subject. Your AI attacked our diagnostics, he said. That was a misunderstanding. Let me talk to him. No, your 
emotional. Kubsch obviously intended to say more, but checked himself. Get some rest, he said. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Vani shouted, Wait! He cut the connection. What should she do? The medics had stuck two intravenous lines in her arm, delivering simple fluids and complex mood stabilizers. She had trouble walking in any case, but she couldn't let her friend die again, even if that was what the real lamb might have wanted. The ghost was too human. It had found its equilibrium while it was limited to her suit, using her armor like its own body, but after they were rescued, it had destabilized when it was subjected to an interface with their central AIs. That didn't mean he shouldn't be saved. Vani knew he could be a formidable ally. And yet she had another incentive to save him, besides the relationship they developed. More important than her personal loyalty was second contact with the sunfish. Kubsch needed every tool available before they went back into the ice. Vani tugged her IVs loose and stood up, although there was no way to sneak out of the lander where the medical droids had operated on her skull and hands. Her med alerts chimed as soon as she disconnected the IVs. A young woman in a blue insulated one-piece stepped into the compartment. Her freckled nose and big hazel eyes gave her a harmless look, which she dispelled by barking like a cop. What are you doing? Get back in bed! I can't, Vani said. There are complications with my suit. I need to assist with data recovery. You need time to heal. I'm okay, Vani squeezed by the young woman, then nodded to the two men in the next compartment as she hurried past. The lander's floor was only fifteen meters square, but it held eight rooms, many of them as small as closets. Striding through the lander felt like running through a maze of steel. It reminded her of the ice. Vani realized she was grinding her teeth, driven by a rising sense of hysteria. She moved faster and faster until she reached the ready room, the largest compartment in the lander. The young woman caught up and said, Stop! We talked about your trauma levels. Your injuries aren't just physical. Kubsch, ask me to come over. Vani lied. Then she tried a different argument. It's good therapy, isn't it? I should stay busy. I guess. The young woman gestured to the men behind her. Vani heard one of them on the radio. This is Metzler in Zero Four, he said. She ignored him and opened the first locker on the wall. Inside was a pressure suit. It weighed twelve times less than the armor she'd worn but the pressure suit felt heavier. It was inert, whereas her armor had walked with her, magnifying every nerve impulse. Why don't we sit down for a minute, the young woman said. Vani donned the pressure suit with her ruined hands. Nearby, three sets of armor hung on chain winches like empty metal giants. Vani might have climbed into one if the biometrics weren't calibrated for each individual. She could use someone else's armor, but clumsily, and the likelihood of hurting herself was too real. Stop, the young woman said. If you won't, help me. Vani met her eyes. Please, you can drive me to the command module. The young woman nodded uncertainly. 
Behind her, the man leaned into the room and frowned. Fanny knew they were all a little in awe of her, and, thinking like a sunfish, she stood erect and shrugged into the sleeves of the pressure suit, projecting confidence with her shoulders and chin. Kubsch is making a mistake, she said. Vani's thoughts quieted as the airlock cycled, depressurizing to match the near vacuum outside. Beside her stood the young woman who joined her. They didn't speak. The young woman flitted through a display inside her visor, while Vani's thoughts consumed her. Was it claustrophobia that had driven her to suit up and leave Lander 04? She expected to have nightmares the rest of her life, but she was loaded with no-shock and antidepressants. She wanted to believe she was in control of herself. Yes, it was out of character for her to have flashed her body at Kubsch. She wasn't a show-off, but she also felt like she was beyond foolish little things like shyness or self-doubt. She'd changed. Some parts of her had died in the ice, and the woman who remained was impatient to set things right. Her entire race was watching. Every decision would be scrutinized across the solar system and in history files for centuries to come, which was why Kubsch had his stiff caution and why Vani thrummed with compassion and fear. If humankind failed again, if she failed again, they might doom every living thing inside Europa, and she'd seen much to admire as well as savagery. Unfortunately, the violence was difficult to overlook. Sunfish had become a popular term across the system, but not everyone consented to humanizing them with a the name. Some of the exceptions were military spokespersons who referred to the sunfish as the aliens, and public officials of the ice mining ventures and utility companies who put their own spin on the situation by saying organisms or things. Many politicians and commentators had also played it safe, either hedging their bets or supporting the interests of various corporations. Vani knew the mining ventures, their distributors, and many industries were hollering because Earth's governments had demanded that the mining ventures reevaluate their sites, then screen and analyze the ice before processing it, all of which created delays and extra costs. Public debate had grown into a firestorm, in part because the ESA had kept Vani under wraps, asking Kubsch to speak to the media on her behalf, and releasing no more than a few brief, sanitized clips of her journey beneath the ice. None of those sims included live recordings of the sunfish, only still shots and diagrams. Nevertheless, their beaks and arms had a lot of people scared, especially in combination with the progress reports listing her surgeries. I need to make sure everyone sees I'm okay, she thought. They have to know that I don't blame the sunfish, that the fighting was my fault. The airlock finished its cycle with a clunk. The exterior door opened. As they walked into the lander's deck, Vani hardly glanced at the fat, 
banded sphere of Jupiter, or the radiant dots where spacecraft hung overhead. Instead, she looked for their command module. She couldn't see it. The icy plain was busy with floodlights, mecha, listening posts, and other hab modules. From where she was standing, there didn't seem to be any pattern. Then she activated her heads-up display. Most of the hab modules and a second lander were spread in a broad ring over an area of a square kilometer. Vani felt a wan smile. In another age, the pioneers of the American West had circled their wagons in the same way. Long before then, in Germany, her ancestors had built their castle walls to guard all sides as well. Old Habits Command Module Zero One was on the far side of camp. Can we take the jeep? Vani asked, turning to the young woman. Yes. Ash Sirzinga was one of their new pilots, as well as a medic and the head of the cybernetics team. All of them had multidisciplinary training and degrees. It cost too much to boost three people if one would do. Every meal, each piece of equipment, had been factored into the mission. They were a long way from replacements, a reality that played in Vani's favor. She knew they discussed sending her home, but no one wanted to use a ship for her, not even the slowboat in which she'd arrived. The jeep was a low-slung vehicle with an open cockpit and wide-tracked wheels. Ash made a point of entering first. Was she concerned Vani might steal it? Where was there to go? Vani didn't like it that Ash distrusted her, but she was an outsider among the new team. Even if they understood her motives, they would tend to support each other instead of her. I need to be careful, she thought. I can't raise my voice or wave my arms. They don't like it that I don't hate the sunfish. They think I'm crazy. The jeep rolled into the hectic lights and mecha, communicating with the other self-guided machines. For the most part, the listening posts and beacons had settled down, becoming stationary obstacles. They resembled short trees with their dishes and antennae serving as leaves, although a few members of the metal forest tottered or crept in restless patterns. The larger mecha were more active. Twice the jeep drove beneath hulking rovers. The first was poised like a giant feeding tick, its head lower than its legs as it drilled into the ice. The second was on patrol. Bristling with sensors and digging arms, it bore down on them, but neither Vani nor Ash flinched. They were accustomed to the machine's flawless dance. The rover passed with meters to spare, and their jeep continued through the long shadows and pools of light. There were open crevices in the ice. The main fracture yawned through the center of the camp, over three hundred meters long, yet rarely wider than a person could jump. The new ESA camp was twelve kilometers southeast of the trench, where Vani, Bauman, and Lamb entered the frozen sky. When the system of vents collapsed, it had destroyed the carvings as well as any chance of venturing back into that region of ice. The collapse had left an uneven, unstable pit in Europa's surface, 1.3 kilometers across. Someday, 
the glacial tides or an upswell in the ocean would fill the hole. For now, it was a scar and a grave. Lamb and Bauman's bodies had been abandoned after religious services and commendations were delivered near the pit by ESA, NASA, and PSSC teams, while Vonnie watched from her bed in the new camp. Their rovers and satellite analysis had located another system of catacombs which could be accessed through the crevices where they'd assembled their HAB modules and flight craft. Too often, there were only a few meters of ice separating the caverns below from the fissures leading up to the surface. That was why the Mecca were on high alert. Studying their data streams, Vani made sense of their grid at last. Kubsch wasn't an idiot. On Europa, any threat would approach from beneath them, not from outside their ring, so he'd spread his assets for mapping purposes, measuring the ice with radar, sonar, neutrino pulse, and seismographs. And weapons systems. The jeep was tied to their defense net, its dashboard winking with steady updates from the Claremont, the ESA ship in orbit above Europa. But we don't need to be on alert, Fanny thought. The sunfish won't come, she said. What? Ash turned in her seat to bring her helmet around, revealing a face full of suspicion. Vani kept her voice tranquil. They won't come, she said. The ones who chased me know we're outside the eyes. They might be listening, but they'll never risk a blowout by coming to the surface. They seemed like they, uh, like they did anything to kill you, even if it meant suicide for them, Ash said. Kubj is worried they'll dig away the ice beneath us. I don't think so. They must be even more afraid of vacuum than we are. You can't know how they think. We've been in space for nearly two hundred years. We were watching the stars before our species learned how to talk. Their sense of distance is limited. All they've ever known are their ears and their sonar. Right, you're right. Ash was humoring her, but Vani saw an opportunity to sway the younger woman. They think the universe ends here, she said. They have no concept of the stars or other planets or anything past the surface. Only death. Try to think how many times their populations must have asphyxiated when eruptions or quakes ripped open their homes. You found airlocks in the ice. They're smart. Vani couldn't stop herself from saying it. They're marvelous. They're monsters. They've never had a chance to be anything else. Ash didn't answer. They'd reached the command module, and Ash busied herself with the jeep's console. She seemed to be receiving a radio call that only she could hear. We need to get back into the ice and figure out how to talk to them, Vani said. Kubsch wasn't happy to see either woman. He met them at the airlock as they stowed their pressure suits, obstructing their way into the module. To his left was the mission's primary data comm room. To his right was one of the multi-purpose labs where they'd brought Vonnie's armor. 
I could have sent your jeep back to medical, but let's get this over with, Kubsch said. Vani tried to cover for Ash. She told me not to come, she said. Did you think you could sneak in and steal your AI? No, sir. Nothing happens on our grid without my knowing it. No, sir. All right. Kubsch gestured for them to go left toward Datacom, not to the lab. Vani hesitated, but she wouldn't get another chance to prove she wasn't a headcase. She dutifully followed him into Datacom. The cramped room had two chairs. Kubsch leaned back in his seat as Vani perched on the edge of hers. Ash stayed at the hatch with her arms folded. You want to go back into the ice, Kubsch said. He tapped the radio in my pressure suit, Vani thought, feeling irate, but she didn't show it. I think we should mount another expedition this week, she said. It's not going to happen, not yet. I don't mean people at first. We should send in Mecca. The best choice would be probes that are the same size and shape as the sunfish. We're building them now. Vani flared at his imperturbable calm. Then we can program some of those probes with my AI. Lamb will have more success than anything new. Kub shook his head. You have to realize there are people on Earth who've proposed sealing off the ice. Vani's heart stopped. We can't do that. Yes, we can. A few explosive charges. We've discovered intelligent life. I believe you. I want to believe you. Everyone involved with the agency has wanted to find something like this since we were kids, right? Vani stared in surprise. Kubj was a government employee. She thought the ESA was just a job to him. We're not sure the sunfish are intelligent, he said. They use language and engineering. They seem to, yes. There's good evidence, but their intelligence hasn't been so well demonstrated that no one is questioning it. If we send in your AI, and he's glitchy, we'll be giving the wrong people more ammunition. Let me talk to him. You're acting a little glitchy, too, Kubsch said, leaning forward and patting Vani's arm. Do you know what the Stockholm Syndrome is? Sometimes a hostage will begin to defend the people who grabbed her. That's bullshit. The sunfish are amazing. Hell, there's no question they'll be profitable, too, Vani said, stewing with contempt. The military and pharmaceutical lobbies must be screaming for DNA samples. Yes. We need to help whatever's left of the sunfish empire. How? Are you proposing an evacuation? To where? I don't know. We should send down food and oxygen. We could lead them to safer areas. They don't have radar. They might not know the best places to hide. That would be an easy way to demonstrate our goodwill. It might come to that, but there are only eleven of us. My first responsibility is to make sure we're safe. That includes maintaining our food and air supplies for the duration of our mission. There will be supply ships. Vani, the sunfish look like they've been down there for 30,000 years. 
They're as old as the last existing populations of Neanderthal man, maybe older. A little more time won't matter. They're telling each other about us right now. They're telling each other I killed dozens of them. You acted in self-defense. They must think we're the monsters. The longer we wait, the worse it will be. They'll build more defenses. They'll prepare for war. We need to try again before they get too entrenched. We will, Vani. We will. But not before we're ready. Meanwhile, you need to help me. Let us use what we can from your AI's mem files and delete its personality. I... If the next stages of our operation don't go right, everything we've planned will be in jeopardy. Vani looked away from him. She didn't want Ash to see her expression either, because if they were going to work together, Ash needed to believe that Vani would always put the team first. In space, a crew was family. Now she had to let them erase Lamb forever. If she needed to choose between her AI or the sunfish, there wasn't a choice at all. Okay, she whispered. Take him apart. During the next few days, they began to settle in for the long haul. Even if there was no further contact with the sunfish, Vani had gathered enough data to occupy thousands of experts for years. Instead, they had eleven people. Data streams let them back and forth with universities, laboratories, and government agencies on Earth and Luna, where other programs were underway, but the eleven of them were the front line. The pressure might have been overwhelming, except Kubj was right. The ESA crew were elite volunteers. Every one of them had dreamed of adventure since they were children. Metzler, the lead biologist, went a hundred hours without rest until he was incoherent with stims and caffeine, and Kubj ordered him to take the same sedatives Vani used to sleep. She'd been allowed to field ten interviews in which prominent newsmen and commentators gushed over her survival while she tried to cast the sunfish in a sympathetic light. I smashed through their homes like some kind of giant, she said. To them, I was the alien. But the newsmen were baffled by this point of view, and their feeds tended to play clips of her speaking well of Bauman and Lamb, as if her friends had died during her encounters with the sunfish. It was infuriating. Vani recorded her own interviews and asked permission to put them on the net, haggling with Kubj, yelling at an assistant director on Earth, finally setting the matter aside because she believed the truth would come out as soon as they contacted the sunfish again. Everybody experienced some level of mania except Ash, who remained cool. Ash seemed to have taken it upon herself to be the vigilant one, the grown-up. At the same time, Kubsch became more and more of a toucher, punching shoulders, whacking backs, participating in their excitement. Ash had a nice smile, especially when the men were around, but she was intense for someone in her early twenties. As a wunderkind, she probably spent her brief adulthood fighting people's assumptions that she was a child. Vani supposed that was why she insisted on Ash, not Ashley, 
because her abbreviated name was Sharp, while the longer version sounded soft. The chip on her shoulder was as big as a sword. Vonnie liked her. She liked all of them. They were honest, dedicated people who embraced their work. One piece of business took priority. Vonnie had encountered bugs, bacterial mats, and fungi, in addition to the warring breeds of sunfish. There were bacteria in the bugs, a parasitic growth on the fungi, and what appeared to be viral infections in the smaller sunfish. For several days, the biologists were given the lion's share of lab time and computing power. It was critical to know if European microorganisms were harmful to human beings. Mecca had removed Vani's armor in a clean lab after injecting her suit with plastic, encasing her in a protective film. Then they'd transferred her half-conscious body to another isolation chamber, where they'd inundated her with UV, nanotech, antibiotics, antivirals, and gene sweeps. It might have made more sense to quarantine her from everyone else, but she hadn't been exposed outside her suit, nor could they allocate an entire HAB module to one person for weeks or months or however long it took Earth to decide she wasn't infectious. Coming to Europa was a prison sentence with additional sacrifices. All of them were given the same regimen of meds. The gene sweeps made Parnet sick, yet he used his chills and nausea to joke with Bonnie instead of blaming her. I need the meds anyway if I don't want to glow, he said, because Jupiter bathed its moons with radiation. If a person could stand on Europa's surface unprotected, she would absorb five hundred rems every twenty-four hours. One day would make her ill. Two days would be a lethal dose. Their electromagnetic shields, suits, and HAB modules could minimize their exposure, but not totally deflect the most lethal hazards, such as gamma rays. Each crew member had an Earth-monitored AI calculating his or her individual risk. Merely driving across camp reduced their life expectancies. They would pay for their time here, with pills and nanotech, in addition to likely surgeries for bone cancer and melanomas. And they were ecstatic. Everything they did felt significant. Every dinner was cause for celebration. Despite objections, Kubsch required everyone to gather for one meal each day. Otherwise, they tended to divide into small groups, communicating across the camp by show phone or by radio, if at all. Dinner was a chance to brag and shout, posing questions, discussing theories, and flirting with other healthy geniuses caught up in the same jubilation. They teased her about being a media star, although Vani sensed that two or three people were truly jealous. The worst case of envy belonged to William Dawson, a gene-smith, an Englishman in his seventies, who was the oldest member of their crew. "'Do try to leave us some of the limelight,' he said, pretending a smile that didn't touch the papery wrinkles around his eyes. Vani worked with Ash, Metzler, O'Neill, and Ferrot to forge their new sunfish-shaped probes. She joined their team immediately, although Kubsch predicted the job would unsettle her. He was correct. 
that whenever Vani entered the machine shop, she cringed. The eight-armed framework on their workbench looked like it had crawled out of her mind. Every night, despite the drugs, she dreamed of screeching monsters. Their prototype was a muscular allium alloy sunfish, 1.2 meters wide, identical to the smaller breed, except for its guts and its missing skin. In real sunfish, the brain massed almost as much as it did in human beings. That was a lot of room to jam with processors and mem cards. Vani estimated they could give each probe a level four intelligence, but they wanted better. They wanted to surpass the threshold required in quantum computing to create level three or two intelligences. They needed more room. Their probes wouldn't breathe or eat, so they gained space where a sunfish had its gills, lungs, hearts, and digestive and reproductive systems. Unfortunately, their probes required power plants, datacom, and sonar. Radar and X-ray would also be ideal. Their design was overtaxed, but mounting external components on the probe would defeat its purpose of appearing like a sunfish. One night over coffee, Ash took Vani aside. "Tell me about your AI," Ash said. "What do you mean? You deleted him." "Me and Kubsh, yeah, I." "What I mean is, you did a great job doubling him up with your suit systems. That was all I had. I know he was erratic, but integrating him with basic functions was a nice trick." Maybe we should try the same thing if we can overcome the instability. As an apology, it was lacking. Like many people who were too smart for their own good, Ash could be blunt, even graceless, and yet Vani appreciated the young woman's attempt to show curiosity and respect. We can look into it, Vani said. First, let's see how much capacity Parnitz wants. Rauno Parnitz, the linguist, also served as an engineering assistant. He consulted with them in developing the prototype's ability to wriggle and bend, running cables, servos, and flexors throughout its body and arms. Generating movements like the sunfish would demand a huge amount of memory and computing power, maybe too much. Parnitz wanted to store most of his programs externally. Linking their probes remotely to an AI was the easy answer. They could use relays to maintain their signals, but Vani didn't like it. What if the probes were cut off? Parnitz was thirty-one, almost Vani's age, lean and hawk-faced. He let her know his bed was open to her. So did Metzler and Frerot. Vani might have paired with one of them if she wasn't so confused emotionally. It was too soon. Physical comfort would be sweet, but she mourned for Lan, even if the two of them hadn't been lovers. The compulsive behavior she'd experienced after being rescued had faded. Too much of her fixation had been a defense mechanism, blinding herself to her pain. She didn't trust herself any more. Maybe she hadn't been broken, but she'd come close. Now she wasn't sure if the pieces still fit. Her superiors on Earth had told her to attend regular therapy sessions with an AI, which was humbling. 
She occupied herself with work and cooking and music. In fact, most days she was able to combine her two hobbies, listening to Beethoven while organizing hors d'oeuvres and soup for everybody in Module 02, which was dedicated to living space, exercise machines, and their tiny kitchen. She was a topsider again, which was probably where she was meant to be. It was day 16 when Kubsch sounded a Class 2 alert, overriding every data comm line in camp. The Brazilians are going into the ice, he said. Kubsch turned beet red as he played the satellite footage again. We can't stop them, he said. They're not answering our signals. What about emergency protocols? Metzler asked. They're blocking everything, Kubsch said. They knew we'd yell as soon as they breached the ice. How long until we hear from Earth? Nine minutes. Vani grimaced at her show phone. She was in Lander 04 with Ash and Ferrot, but everyone had linked to their group feed, which arranged their faces in miniature around a larger hollow display. The display showed fourteen mecha dropped into a rift in the ice, followed by five armored men, then six more mecha. Five of the machines had been adapted with additional arms, short arms lined with pedicillaria. The Brazilians apparently planned to communicate with the sunfish, but it was a rushed effort. Their other mecha were crawlers, diggers, sentries, and gun platforms. There's no way they're set, Metzler said. Most of the ESA crew wore expressions of exasperation or disbelief. Metzler was pissed off. In his forties, squat and ugly, so ugly he was cute like a bulldog, Ben Metzler was a hothead and a wise-ass. In some ways, his biting opinion of people reminded her of Lamb. The Chinese will go next, he said. You watch. They'll go next, and then we'll be ordered in, too, just to show everyone who's got the biggest dick. We're going to contaminate this whole area. I thought the Brazilians agreed to the A.N. resolutions, Vani said. Kubsch nodded. They did. All sides had declared an intent to coordinate their actions and share information freely. When the time was right... The Allied nations planned for a unified expedition. The goal was to establish a single party of translators and diplomats, but humankind was as divided as the sunfish. The ESA wasn't alone in running spy sats over Europa to watch their human counterparts. Some of their mecha were self-defense units, equipped mostly with electronic warfare systems. Many of their A.I. were committed to the same game of stealing each other's data streams while encrypting their own. NASA and the E.S.A. were old partners, often pairing with Japan, but China maintained its distance, and the Brazilians were the most recent addition to Earth's spacefaring groups. They'd cultivated a national spirit as upstarts and underdogs. Vani understood their eagerness, she identified with their need to prove themselves. She'd felt the same emotions when she'd first landed on Europa. Why hadn't they learned from her disaster? 
As much as Bonnie wanted to contact the sunfish again, it wasn't envy that made her want to stop the Brazilians. Until they'd run a sufficient number of probes, fully decoded the carvings and mastered the sunfish language, blundering into the ice would only make things worse. The Brazilians' swagger was an insult. "'Sir, they're going in with guns,' Vani said to Kubsch. "'They're either hunting specimens or looking for a fight.' "'Brazil's in trouble,' Metzler said. "'They need money to upgrade everything they've got. "'Ships, suits, you name it. "'If they're the first ones in and they start capturing native life-forms, "'they'll have buyers lined up out the door with cash in hand.' It doesn't matter if they kill a few sunfish. A circus is exactly what they want. We can't wait for a decision back home, Vani said. Earth was a quarter of the way around the sun from Jupiter. Each radio burst took eleven minutes to travel from the ESA camp to Berlin, the European Union capital, plus eleven minutes back again. It was a tedious way to have a conversation. "'What do you propose?' Kubsch asked. "'Let me have the display, please.' Vani brought up real-time surveillance of the Brazilian camp. The place looked deserted. Fani, the Força Nacional de Exploração do Espaço, had sent less people and less Mecca than any of the other three nations on Europa. Their activities had been limited, which made them easier to monitor, and yet they'd chosen a location above a more extensive system of vents than the crevices beneath the ESA camp. Typical, Metzler grumbled. We should have predicted they were up to something. If five of them went in, they only left two people behind for command and control, Vani said highlighting one of the Brazilian HAB modules where ESA satellites detected the most electronic noise. Here. You're not talking about storming their base, Kubsch said. Nothing so heavy-handed. They'll be overwhelmed with their telemetry, and I know we've hacked into their net, Bonnie said, looking at Ash and Ferrot. Ash pursed her lips, but she nodded. We can shut down some of their mecca and lose the rest, Vani said. That'll stop them. We don't want to hurt anybody, Kubsch said. If they get stuck, they'll send a mayday, and we can walk them out. Piece of cake. That's why we need to stop them before they go too far. What do the Americans say? Metzler asked. They'll help us if they can, but we're right on top of the problem, Kubsch said. The ESA and Brazilian camps were only sixteen clicks apart, whereas the Americans and the Chinese were closer to the Southern Pole. Ash? Sir, we're light years ahead of anything Brazil has in AI, she said. We can do it. ESA Support Mission, Europa, 27 June, 2113 Command, Kubsch, Peter Gunther Engineering, Gravino, Antonio Leonardo. Sirzinga, Ashley Nicole. Life Sciences, Dawson, William George. Frerot, Henri Charles. Johal, Harmit. Metzler, Benjamin Todd. O'Neill, Dublin David. Linguistics, Collinsworth, Elizabeth Ann. 
Parnitz, Rauno. Supernumerary, Vonderak, Alexis Rose. Kubsch, Command, Psi, Datacom. Dawson, Gene Smith. Yohal, Gene Smith, Med, Hab. Frerot, Biology, Hab, Ast, Suitmaint, Ast, Datacom. Metzler, Biology, Planetary, Ast, Rom. O'Neill, Biology, Ecology, Ast, Rom. Collinsworth, Linguistics, Pilot, Med, Psi. Parnitz, Linguistics, Ast Engineering, Hab. Searzinga, Pilot, Nav, Med, Datacom, Cybernetics. Gravino, Engineering, Pilot, Med, Hab, Datacom. Vonderak, Pilot, Nav, Maint, Med, Rom. Mission Control, ESOC, Darmstadt. Mission Launch Facilities, Robespierre. Craft, Deep Space Intruder Class, Claremont. Support, DSSC HAB Modules, 3. ROM-6 Lander Flight Craft, 2. ROM-2 APSM Modules, 4. ROM-6 ATMP Vehicles, 4. ROM-4 Rovers, 10. ROM-4 GP Mecca, 20. ROM-4 Beacons, 45. ROM-4 MMPSA, 55. Vani's crew went on the offensive even as they continued to send urgent queries to Earth. Kubsch wanted the cover of waiting for instructions. Later, if necessary, he could present a convincing report that his team had been frantically, helplessly observing the Brazilians, and nothing more. Ash spearheaded the assault. She already had her elements in place— Part of her job was to ensure the ESA camp was equipped to repel cyber invasions. By necessity, some of those guardians were made to counter-strike. The most insidious weapons in her arsenal were SCPs. Sabotage and control programs were dark cousins of AI, as far evolved from their origin, computer viruses, as people were evolved from the first small hairy mammals of the Mesozoic era, two hundred million years ago. A malevolent, replicating intelligence whose sole purpose was to corrupt healthy systems, an SCP normally included the seeds of its own destruction, a kill code, like a fuse, to prevent it from coming back at its master. Now, Ash specifically tailored fifteen SCPs to pirate and transmit the Brazilians' data streams to the ESA camp which would let her substitute her own signals into the Brazilian grid. Kubsch swiftly double-checked and authorized her plan, but when she began her uploads, he questioned her. What were those? You sent five packets that weren't on our list, didn't you? Kubsch asked. And Ash said, I always have a few tricks up my sleeve, sir. Listening to the group feed, Vani, Metzler, and Ferrot 
donned their armor and walked outside, needing room to operate. They entered a maintenance shed where they would be hidden from spy sats. Inside the shed, Vani studied her companions, itching to go, remembering Bauman and Lamb. For the moment, no one said anything. They simply monitored their link with Ash. She danced. Surrounded by a virtual display, Ash tapped her gloves into a hundred blocks of data, moving like a conductor. Slow down, slow down, Ash said to one program as she cut her fingers through its yellow alarm bars. Most of her SCPs operated at speeds beyond human understanding, but others required checkbacks or multiple launches. All but the most sinister fed reports to her station. Three A.I.s helped her govern this mayhem. We're in, she said. Go. They could have used five people in armor, one each for the five Brazilians, but Kubsch needed most of their crew to generate a hubbub of ordinary activity to maintain appearances. At short notice, they also lacked the structures to conceal more than three sets of armor from the satellites overhead. Vani's helmet showed her an environment that was not the crowded interior of the maintenance shed. It seemed like she was beneath the ice. Ash had ghosted Vani's systems into the armor of the funny commander, Ribeiro, allowing Vani to look and listen through his sensors. Static leapt across her visor as the muscles in her left arm clenched into a severe, painful knot. The hack was imperfect. She began to get a headache. Ash, can you correct my feed? She said. Cut my neural contacts until you do. I'm trying. Ribeiro's squad was 1.9 kilometers in. They'd navigated a slumping old labyrinth of vents, cutting through veils of stalactites. The ice was coated with minerals in this area. The minerals made the ice more durable, which had helped preserve these catacombs. The map on Ribeiro's heads-up display showed they were pushing toward the upper reaches of a distorted rock mountain, another 2.2 kilometers down. They'd left beacons and sentries behind them. That was more than enough for Ash to piggyback into their net. Her takeover was subtle at first. Four Mecca reported integration failures. They came back online, failed again, then repeated the pattern. Inside Ribeiro's helmet, alarm codes winked on and off like white noise. At the same time, Vani introduced contrary movements to Ribeiro's stride. When he swung his leg forward, she kicked it to the left. As he lifted his arm to compensate, she resisted. The conflicting feedback caused an interrupt. His armor shut down to run emergency diagnostics. Something's wrong, he said in Portuguese, Vani's suit automatically translating his words. Santos, I'm getting a lot of interference. His lieutenant couldn't answer. Beside Vani, Metzler and Ferrat were randomizing the Brazilians' communications. Base, this is one, Ribeiro said. Do you copy, base? This is one. I'm switching to open channels at max gain. Can you hear me? Malfunctions took three or more of his mecha offline, as Vani kicked his leg again. There was no need for her armor to move in reality. 
Her suit conveyed Ribeiro's actions to her body and likewise transmitted her intent to him. Inside the maintenance shed, Vani's armor remained still, except for the most dramatic gestures. Ferrot waved his hands again and again as he scrolled through funny internal menus. They harassed Ribeiro's squad for thirty-six minutes. Alternately blind, deaf, or lame, the Brazilians verged on losing themselves in the ice. Vani didn't want to sympathize, but those memories were too fresh. Inside her suit, she began to sweat, her hands balled into fists, cramping and stiff. It was another impairment that haunted Ribeiro. He became unable to open his gloves. He was very brave. He rallied his squadmates with crisp, rapid-fire decisions, consolidating their few unaffected systems. He obviously suspected their problems were no accident, and he thoroughly cursed the Americans, the Europeans, and the Chinese in turn. Cowards, he said. Rapists, you lick between your sister's legs. Ash snickered at that. <laughs> oh, yuck. Ribeiro was almost a cliché a swarthy macho man, but there was more to him than his bluster. Like the ESA crew, the funny were the best of their best. Some day he might learn who was behind the raid on his team, which could be unpleasant. He would make a dangerous foe. Okay, Kubsch says we've done enough, Ash said. Looks like Ribeiro's about to get the order to pull out. Nice work, Vani told her. Ash hesitated. On my mark, let's slam them one more time. Ready? Mark. Vani blinded Ribeiro again as she caused interrupts in both legs, causing him to crash against the tunnel wall. But in the next heartbeat, she reactivated his radar and infrared. She needed to see. Behind him, a digger and two gun platforms were convulsing, the digger shook so ferociously it bounced from the tunnel floor. As it rolled over, Vani realized what had drawn her attention. Its legs writhed in familiar patterns, like a sunfish. But that's impossible, she thought. Although the digger was shaped more like a scorpion than a sunfish, with its claws and a cutting tail, the Brazilians must have programmed their mecca to mimic everything they'd gleaned from the public data of her time beneath the ice. If not, there was only one explanation for the digger imitating sunfish shapes. Vani saw two more diggers caught in identical seizures. Only the diggers. None of the other mecca used sunfish shapes. They shuddered and jerked. Ash must have hit the diggers with the same SCP— while she used other weapons against the rest of the funny mecha. In unison, the diggers quit shaking. The nearest one hunched on the floor with sudden poise, scanning back and forth as if waking up for the first time. The other two assumed standby positions, although none of them acknowledged the abort code relayed through Ribeiro's suit. Get out, his people radioed from camp. Get out! The Brazilians retreated with less than half their mecha. Some might be saved later. Five kept dropping their response codes or were destroyed internally. Before Ribeiro lost sight of the abandoned machines, Vani thought the diggers turned 
to scurry deeper into the ice. She opened a private channel to Ash. I'd like to buy you a drink, she said. Nobody brought any money, did they? Ash said. I appreciate it, but I'm going to be swamped with cleaning up Datacom and writing my report. One drink, Fonny said. Later. That night, instead of alcohol, Fonny brought Ash a piece of carrot cake she'd baked herself after running over to Module 02 and its small oven. Better for you than vodka, she said. Thank you, Ash said cautiously. What happened to their mecca at the end? Total systems override, Ash said. I burned their AIs with disposable subsets of our own. You appreciate a good program? It's what I do. Vani glanced over her shoulder, but the two of them were alone. I think you couldn't bring yourself to kill Lamb, she said. Ash stopped eating the cake. Why wouldn't I? Maybe you broke Lamb into components, like Kubsch said, making him look like an SCP. But you kept all of his files, and you knew you couldn't hide him in your system forever. That's why you uploaded him into the Brazilian diggers. Ash was either a superb actress or innocent. That sounds like a lot of work, she said, looking Vani right in the eye. Nobody but a top programmer could fox our system and the funny grid at the same time. Someone like you. The corner of Ash's mouth ticked with a smile. I don't know what you're talking about, she said, and Vani laughed. Lamb was alive, somewhere inside the frozen sky. <laughs> So we are joined by the writer of that fine story. He is the all-American action hero. He is Dragon Slayer, Snake Charmer. He is... Oh, wait, I've got the wrong guy. Sorry, that's tomorrow's um, interview. I've got Jeff Carlton on the phone. Jeff, sir, how are you doing? I am I am the master of the universe. I am a wonderful person. Keep going. Keep talking. Oh, yes, I could throw some fine comments there. And it's all true, mine as well. Jeff. You are a cracking story writer. And i tell you what I love as well. You've went back to this universe, you know, this kind of frozen sky universe. Tell us about, because we played, because I'm still trying to get my head around it. We played Frozen Sky, a short story about Frozen Sky. Now, it must have been maybe two years ago. Now I see we've got, we've just played Topsider. Where does Frozen Sky, Topsider, and this now Frozen Sky, the novel, come into everything? Explain, sir. You bet. Yeah. Get your get your check sheet ready. We're gonna, there's going to be charts and diagrams and, and dry erase boards and I'll, I'll draw it all out for you. Uh, first, before we get started, I wanted to tell you, we picked just the right day for this. A roofing crew showed up at my neighbor's house this morning. Um, so if in the background you're hearing nail guns and shouting and banging or even better it would be somebody going, no! splat and that's just this there's a roofing crew ripping off the garage of the of the house it's you know 30 feet over the fence to my side so yeah if there's any uh machine gun fire screaming banging I don't just worry about, go with it actually when i was recording this show today i had hailstones so you could hear hailstones at the beginning of the show so i wouldn't worry about a couple of nail Great. guns going off 
It's going to sound like hailstones, but potentially with screaming if somebody, you know, doesn't have their, their rope tied on tight. Uh, the frozen sky. Yeah, get the, uh, get the dry erase board out. Um, back in 2006, when I was just starting to get rolling, um, I wrote a long short story called The Frozen Sky, which is, of course, is, you know, the dark, freaky aliens in the dark adventure uh, set on Europa out near Jupiter. And um, it did very well in the Writers of the Future contest, and it appeared in Writers of the Future 23, and that was just super, super exciting. I had just finished um, why I just sold my first novel, um, had sold my first story to Asimov's and, you know, was in, uh, you know, other markets with short stories. So anyway, uh, and it was just it's just a really cool idea. If I, you know, say so myself, um, because Europa is it's this it's this ocean world. It's it's a it's almost like a terrestrial world. It has a rocky core and it's surrounded by this just gigantic ocean. And of course, it's so far away from the sun that the top 10 to 20 kilometers of the ocean is frozen solid. So the sky of this little world, you know, it's frozen. And I imagine there's all kinds of cool little crevices and tunnels and and, you know, thin mountain volcanoes kind of pushing up through the ice because it only has a 13th of Earth's normal, Earth normal gravity. So you get just these cool towering spindles of, you know, volcanic, you know, rock and stuff. And anyway, I uh, had a great time with it. And, of course, there's, you know, scary monsters down there and people are running around screaming. Uh, and the, the story did, did very well. It's been picked up in uh, five countries, you know, in five foreign languages it ended up being reprinted twice in English. Uh, it appeared on, you know, the world-shattering podcast, Starship Sofa. Uh, and it was something that I always wanted to do more with because it was just a short story and you had this whole world to play with. And then obviously how it interacts with our world. And it's set, you know, not quite 100 years in the future. So you get to have cool technology with artificial intelligence and battle suits and just all this cool stuff which was way too much just to pack into, you know, 60 odd pages. And, you know, we can wander down more side roads with this later, but so it was something that I always wanted to do more with. And originally I had planned that I would kind of do it like Alan Steele's coyote series, which is really more a conglomeration of short stories and novellas. The first book anyway, you know, when he, he took all, you get to use different points of views and different times and settings and, but it all threads together. Um, and my publisher at the time didn't want aliens and spaceships. They wanted more nanopocalypse. Um, and that seemed like a good idea. And I had the big corporate you know, machine behind me. And you want to do what the big corporate machine wants to do. And that's all worked out really, really well for me. And I ended up, I ended up writing the sequel to Plague Year instead of a novel version of The Frozen Sky. Um, so fast forward to, you know, I guess it was uh, early 2012. Fast forward, fast forward to now. And I found myself in a good slot in between other commitments, other stories. And, you know, I always have like eight things on the back burner, but I was at the point where I didn't have anything on a front burner. And I'm like, now's the time. Oh, I don't know what I was going to say. And so uh, in 2010, this is why we have to have the dry erase board so you can, you know, do the arrows and the circles with the lines connecting each other. Uh, in 2010, you know, the rights to the original short story had reverted to me. And, you know, the whole the wild eyed frothing at the mouth e-revolution had come with Kindle and Nook and, and Kobo and Smashwords and and everybody's, you know, just dumping everything straight onto the net for you to download on your cool little e-reader. Well, I wanted to see, you know, how that would work, too. 
And I'm very much a, a traditional, you know, kind of writer. I came up, you know, the traditional route, selling short stories, graduating to novels, finding an agent, selling, you know, books in New York, books in stores, print, you know, actual dead tree books in stores. Um, and so I put the original short story, The Frozen Sky, up on Kindle and Nook and whatnot uh, for 99 cents. You know, it was 60 pages. That seemed fair. Well, it sold 40,000 copies. Um, and that was a pretty big eye opener. I was like, I was like 40,000 copies. I mean, that's as many copies as my first novel sold with, you know, print editions in airports and stuff. And that's not like a staggering number. That's not like what you would have if you had dead tree editions in Target and Walmart and Costco and, and all this kind of stuff. But 40,000 copies, I, you know, I was just like, wow, uh, this is neat. Um, and so I sat down and I'd been developing notes for a novel of the frozen sky all this time. And so I sat down and I wrote the book. Now, Topsider is uh, one of the things I tell you, you know, the, the book starts off with the same part of the story, except that I expanded it, corrected a lot of the science and biology that I really didn't have right the first time, just a bunch of little stuff. Um, I get to use words like chemo autotrophs, love that. Um, and so uh, Topsider is, is, is basically an excerpt of the novel. Uh, it's a standalone chunk of the whole frozen sky, you know, epic where you have a, a kind of a smaller scene with a smaller cast of characters dealing with, I mean, you can't really say it's a smaller problem because it's dealing with, you know, multinational organizations off of earth confronting, you know, the first intelligent alien life that we found anywhere. So that's not really a small problem, but for the sake of storytelling, uh, it's sort of an encapsulated moment you know, where you have like the, a smaller moment of the plot for them to try and figure out and then resolve. Uh, and so that's what Topsider is. It's just a, it's an excerpt of the Frozen Sky novel just lopped clean out of the middle. I'm going to take a breath now. Have I been talking? <laughs> no, see, I just want to listen to you. I'm not even going to, I didn't even want to interrupt you. I'm just going to, you, you get away there, Jeff. You just keep on rattling them off there. Because it's, it, it is, it's fascinating. I'll tell you what is fascinating, mind you. 40,000. You just stuck that short story up on, you know what I mean? That is, that don't put yourself down. That is a cracking number of, you know, sales just for a short story. So the question I'm going to ask you now, you don't have to ask us, you don't have to tell us, like, how many has this novel sold then? If you've, you know, if that got 40,000, has this, have, how, much, how many has this novel sold? And have you done this yourself, this Frozen Sky? Is it all your own work? You know, like the, you've done away with the kind of the publishers, the editors. This is just you launching that up on Amazon and Kindle and all that places. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's back up just a smidge. So at the 99 cent price point, Kindle and all of its cousins um, pay a, a 35 percent royalty, which means I was you know making 35 cents a pop. They they round up on your behalf. So instead of 34 cents, I was making 35 cents. So well, so that, that was fourteen thousand dollars. And I'm I'm a working writer, and I have kids and a mortgage. I'm hoping like our I'm hoping our favorite kid will get to go to college. Uh, the other one can flip flip burgers at, at Burger King. You know, sorry, buddy, I could only afford to send your brother to school. Um, so fourteen thousand dollars again. That's not going to pay my mortgage. Actually, actually, it, it almost did pay our mortgage for the year, um, and it's not going to send anybody to college. But it was free money. You know, it was free money. Uh, you know, it, you know, it took me I don't know like a hundred dollars to get you know all my little ducks in a row for the short story. It's free to upload. Yeah, there's no agent involved. Uh, I'm, I got to pay taxes on it. 
um, just in case, you know, Dick Cheney is listening. I know you're out there, Dick. Um, and, uh, and so yeah, 14th, I mean, it was an eye opener, man. I mean, I'll tell you, that was more than the advance for Plagueer. Uh, I mean, Plagueer did pretty darn well for me. And we ended up making a lot more money than that, with, especially with Around the World and the foreign deals and the, the movie and the audio and just all this kind of stuff. I mean, Plagueer, Plagueer did pretty darn well for a, a debut genre sci-fi paperback original. Um, but yeah, $14,000 in... It was about in a year and a half that the original Frozen Sky earned that. And again, that was just, it was, I was like, I was like, damn, you know, I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't what I expected at all because I'm not on Facebook four hours a day and Twitter and whatever, you know, five hours a day, just relentlessly self-promoting my stuff. I'm writing my next book. Uh, That's a good, Jeff, sorry, that's a good question. Do you know what I mean? How do you get then the publicity? Because like you say, you're not on them. You haven't got the back ends. You haven't got anything to do with, you know, your your agents or, you know, publishers aren't helping you this time. For one short story, that's just an incredible, do you know what I mean? That's like, I'm not joking, that'll give hope to some writers out there because the amount of times you hear where they just, it just doesn't work and, you know, it just... It's a load of bollocks for, you know, they're writing and writing and writing and getting nowhere. Do you know, it's, it's nice to know that without any help, you know, you stick your work on there and sometimes, you know, you hit lucky. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I have a, a decent fan base and, you know, I, I spam the heck out of anybody who's ever emailed me. You know, you're going to get three or four emails from me in the year saying, hey, here's my new, my new thing is out. Uh, and I am on Facebook and I am on Twitter, um, but I, you know, I'm, a, I'm a grown man. And I have a family and again, in a mortgage, I don't just don't, I don't have time to just hang out on Facebook and I don't care where you're standing in line and what kind of sandwich you're going to order. But, you know, there are people around the world that I, you know, stay in touch with via Facebook and hear about their lives and their kids. And like, hey, it's an awesome technology. But, you know, so it wasn't doing wasn't doing just the crazy nonstop self-promotion. I just put it up there to see what was going to happen. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of industry professionals these days and, and almost to a man or a woman. Why are you always going on about women, Stan? <laughs> yeah, Stan, why? Because I want to be one. You want to what? I want to have babies. And where's it going to gestate, Stan? You're going to carry it around in a box? Anyway, um, so they'll, to a man or a woman, they'll tell you that word of mouth really kind of remains the, uh, you know, like the prime force in selling books or short stories. Um, and so, you know, again, without sounding too full of myself, the frozen sky, it's just a really cool idea. Um, it's just, it's just kind of classic sci-fi stuff. And it's also it, because it has the neat environment. It's almost the opposite of plague year, you know, plague year, you got to be on the highest points, of the mountains around the world, or you die. Whereas the frozen sky, you know, the humans are landing on top of the ice and then they're kind of burrowing down into the catacombs and, the caves and whatnot, you know, down in the ice and then in the rock mountains. Uh, and I get to just do all this cool stuff with, you know, the alien intelligence, how they view the universe, because none of them have eyes because it's just perpetually dark down there. And then they have no concept of the outside universe, because if they go, you know, up through the top of the ice, there's really nothing out there but vacuum. And so you have periodic eruptions and blowouts and entire, you know, colonies asphyxiating and all this stuff. And so, you know, so there's just this whole, this cool meeting of the mind with, you know, the humans, we're very much a top down, you know, species, you know, you got your king on the top and your peasants on the bottom. And so for us to be coming down from the top to the bottom, but they're, they're a bottom up species and it just, just all this cool stuff. And so anyway, and it was cheap. It was 99 cents. 
Um, I have the book at $3.99, which is, that's, you know, that's less than a paperback for a, a full length, you know, novel and, and all this great stuff. And so, um, you know, in my dreams, of course, Tony, I would just sell, I, I self-published The Frozen Sky. I wanted to see what was going to happen. In my dreams, I was going to self-publish it. And of course, it would sell 40,000 copies, you know, overnight. And we'd be like, wow, you know, welcome to the e-future. This is what we're going to do all the rest of the way through. Um, uh, but, it, but it's not. Now, it's done pretty well. Um, I don't know if I want to give you an exact number, but it's sold a few thousand copies already. It's only really been out for like a month and a half. Um, and I can tell you that at that price point and those numbers, I basically made as much money. Not quite. I've almost made as much money already as I did for the entire advance for Plague Year. Uh, and so, and, and again, there's no, you know, there's no commission to my agent. Um, I am actively looking for ways to keep them involved because I want to sell foreign rights. It totally. Obviously it seems like a natural for a movie. Um, all this stuff. I think agents still very much have a place in the world and their networks. Uh, and we could, um, we could fast forward to another idea on that if you want, but, um, so yeah, it's, it's doing well and it's been kind of gradually building. Cause again, if it's word of mouth, so you've sold a few thousand copies already. Well, a lot of those people haven't even read the book yet. They've bought it, but they haven't read the book. So I'm kind of patience is not my strong um, thing at all, but I'm trying to patiently, you know, they need to finish the book, hopefully like the book, then start telling their friends and Facebooking about it and, and, and whatever. And you kind of start getting that that little wave and you can kind of see it. You know, because don't think I don't check those little Amazon rankings every day and you can, you know, kind of see the book kind of slowly, you know, wafting and it's rising in the rankings and settling back and rising in the rankings and settling back. And and, you know, poor Jeff Carlson's his moods are up and down every day spiking. Oh, no, I'm plummeting. Oh, am I crazy, man? You know, I should have stayed with New York. No, this is fantastic. It's all working out. And and and, uh, yeah, I mean, I should have been a should have been a banker. So you, I'll tell you what, you know, why not then, Jeff? You know, like you say, this is, you've, you've put a novel on there. What's to stop you or what's stopping you? Maybe going back in your, your early short fiction. Let's just say, because I'm looking on the internet science fiction database, your first short story on there says Exit 1994. Why not just, Man. you know, put that on? Like you say, 99 cents again. You know, six months later, put another one on. Uh, well, that's a, that's actually a good idea. That's a great idea, Tony, and and I did it. Um, given the uh, here's the funny part, people, as a general rule, do not like or respond to short stories or short story collections as much as they do novels. And I'm pretty much the same way. I mean, if if it's not a short story written by somebody named Haldman or Varley, uh, or sometimes Willis, I don't. I just don't respond to it. I like them. Um, but if you look at the numbers, like, you know, and all the, you know, I don't know, the century of, you know, data out of New York, they pretty much stopped doing short story collections from anybody but the top guys because short story collections don't sell anywhere near as well as novels. And it's the same, you know, you get into the novel, you like the characters, the ideas, you want to stay there. Whereas the short story, you know, you're, you know, you're in it, you blink, you turn around. Now, that's not to say there isn't a significant you know, demographic that likes short stories. I mean, I get emails from people, you know, they're, they're telling me they're reading on their iPhone while they're, you know, standing in line at the post office or whatever. And then short stories are perfect or they're, they're reading, you know, on their iTouch or, you know, or whatever on their commute to work. And so a short story is perfect. Well, I experimented a little bit with putting all the rest of my short stories 
um, up on, you know, Kindle, et cetera, at 99 cents with like three or four short stories a piece. They did all right. I made a few hundred dollars. Um, and, but so the funny part is, is the frozen sky was a, the original was essentially a glorified short story. It was a long short story. Um, and so I can't explain why a long short, I mean, it was nowhere near a novel. It was, you know, 60 pages in, in manuscript form. I can't explain why that would do so well. And yet, you know, a, a 20 page in manuscript short story wouldn't do so well. Uh, so what I eventually did is I kind of reversed course on that. And I put all of my short fiction together in a short story collection. Uh, it's been, you know, it's been well reviewed by critics and readers alike, Tony. Uh, and it's up, I got it up for $2.99 on Kindle and Nook. It's called Long Eyes. It's called after the uh, the title story, which I think was done on Starship. I'm, Sova, sure, I'm sure it was as well, yes. Um, and so and it's, it's done pretty well. I mean, I'll, I'll give you the number on that one, Tony. Um, my short story collection, Long Eyes, has sold 3,000 copies so far. It actually just hit the big 3,000, I don't know, like last week or something. Again, don't think I'm not checking my little numbers of <laughs> every, you know, every day or week. Um, and I'll tell you, man, we, my agent and I discussed shopping a short story collection around New York. There are a few opportunities. I'm a success. I'm a long, long way from being, you know, like a big success. I'm a successful writer. Um, we got a little bit of interest from New York, but nobody would commit. What, what, that, what that puts you with is a mid or small press, many of whom are doing excellent, excellent work, and I buy their books. Um, but I'll tell you, man, the print run, it'd be like a lovely hardcover. I love hardcovers, man. I love dead tree editions. You can hold them in your hands and put them on your bookshelf and, and brag about them and stuff. Um, you know, they do like a lovely hardcover edition. The print run would be 2,500, 3,000 with an expected sell through of 50%. Well, nobody's making any money if you're selling 1,500 books. I mean, the publisher barely breaks even. You make a little bit of Well, I've already, you know, I've made, you know, $6,000. And again, that's not going to put our favorite kid through college or our second favorite kid through remedial school. I'm trying to be funny. They're both super geniuses. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, no, but but it, it's, it was free money. It's free money for me. And then meanwhile, you know, hopefully it's drawing, you know, new people into my other stuff, you know, expanding my grasp on, you know, the, the e-universe. Um, and it's done pretty well. I mean, and that's just, again, that's just like in the first year and a half and I own it free and clear. There's no agents commissions. There's no, you know, there's no reserves against returns, which is the magic publishers use to keep the money even longer. I mean, you know, I get royalty statements from Penguin, you know, twice a year and they're always, you know, uh, three months in arrears. And, and then there's always reserves against returns, which means they're essentially a year or two, in arrears, whereas this this crazy e-revolution stuff, I mean, it's all it's real time, man. I can get onto my little you know KDP Kindle Direct Publishing website and check sales numbers like to the hour, uh, and they they pay in sixty days. Um, you know they pay they pay monthly sixty days in arrears, and it's just bam, 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 and it's 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 a direct deposit straight to my bank account. I mean, it's crazy, man. It's just it's so. Philip K. Dick, I can hardly stand. <laughs> so, you know, the, the ultimate question is, Jeff, with all this, what, what have you learned from this? Because I'll, I'll be interested to know as well, this like a two-part question. Would you ever write a short story now purely, you know, as a commercial venture for you, put it on Amazon Kindle without even putting it through Asimov's, you know, analog, anything like that? Just write a short story and bang it up there. Um, that's kind of a yes and no 
that's kind of a yes and no answer. Um, I, I, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a successful writer. I can say that, I guess. And, and I'm at the level where I do get invitations to, you know, anthologies or magazines. And I was actually asked, I had two opportunities to place top cider as a standalone excerpt in two very nice markets. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, and I said, no, I turned it down and I felt awful. But the reality was that the legalese was because they want an exclusive for as much as 18 months. And I'm getting paid, you know, like six to eight cents a word or, you know, and this, this was a special case because it was an excerpt from the book or I could just publish the book. You know, and again, I've already made a few thousand dollars. And if it takes off even like half as well as the short story did, I'm going to make a lot of money. Um, and, and equally important, I'm going to reach a lot of people. Dude, I love being an Asimov's. Being able to walk into like a brick and mortar bookstore and just see your, I mean, that's like the, the, for me, when that first started happening, you could walk into Barnes and Noble and find magazines that had my stories in it. It was mind croggling, man. This is what I've always wanted to do since I was, you know, eight years old, maybe 10. I wanted to be a firefighter when I was eight. Um, and so, but the reality is, again, though, I have kids and a mortgage and I've stopped writing short fiction because it just doesn't pay. Um, it's good. You know, the, uh, I know a lot of, uh, I don't want to drop any names. I, I know a lot of writers, pros that, that do the short stories still as loss leaders because it, it helps just get your name out there in, you know, in different markets and to new readers. And that's cool. But dude, I'm really busy. I mean, we have two small boys, um, just the homework and the schoolwork and the, the sports We're real big on soccer. You'll like that because you're British. Um, and, uh, just all the, just the running around and we live in like this 55 year old house that's just constantly falling apart. And again, I'm a writer, man. I can't, I can't afford, we don't have like a gardener or, you know, a carpenter or a maid or a cook or a nanny or whatever. I'm all of those things. Um, and so I'm out here. So I spend my weekends doing the carpentry and the painting and birds that are falling off the walls. Um, and so anyway, so, you know, my, my writing time has become pretty precious. And so I, I want to work, do it working on the novel. So can I, can I, I have two, I have two deep thoughts for you. You want to hear two yeah, deep thoughts? Fire away. Fire away. One of the things that I've learned, um, A, is that no one ever, there was never a British publisher that bought the rights to my Plagueier trilogy. And that's partly because you can just go into many bookstores in London and whatnot and just find the books because Ace Penguin has non-exclusive world print rights. And so you have enterprising, you know, bookstore owners who, like I had a fan, I mean, just like, I was like a month ago now, you know, took a cool picture on his iPhone of, you know, plague you're sitting in a storefront window, you know, somewhere in one of your squares. You guys have all these cool squares, like <laughs> square or whatever. And he, and he emailed it to me. And I'm like, that's awesome, dude. You know, there's my books in, in, you know, in downtown London. I love it. Um, and so it's harder for a British publisher, unless they do it simultaneously, to buy. Uh, you guys are um, you guys are territory A. That's how New York uh, refers to you in your ilk, the, uh, the Aussies and the New Zealanders, it's harder for a British publisher economically to compete with that and say, Hey, we're going to, you know, spend our hundreds or tens of thousands of dollars doing our own edition and then put it in bookstores when the American editions are already not flooding our market, but, you know, taking up some of our readers. Um, so no one has ever had ebook rights in territory a, 
And Penguin USA does have non-exclusive ebook rights in English around the world, excepting Territory A. Well, one of the things that I've been spending my precious hours on um, is revamping the entire Plagueer trilogy to release them as ebooks around the world. Penguin has exclusive ebook rights in North America. Someday, when those books go out of print, the rights will revert to me, and I'll be able to release my own new editions in North America. Right now, it sucks to live in North America if you want to read about the nanopocalypse because you'll only be able to buy these books in the UK uh, and in other places where Kindle is now invading, like, you know, Kindle, you know, Germany and France and Japan and whatever. Um, so anyway, I went back and, and looked at these books and I wanted to polish them. And I wasn't allowed to use Penguin's galleys because those are proprietary, which means I had to go back through and hunt down every typo and every place, you know, where I had set a soldier's, you know, wearing a blue dress uniform when really it should have been forest camouflage. Because over the years, I've just had all these emails from military people who are saying, hey, you know, the guy, the, the guy wouldn't be wearing a blue uniform. He'd be wearing a green Nomex flight suit. <laughs> I'll change that. Um, and so, uh, I, like, I'm just taking the first step. I've just uploaded the author's cut of Plague Year onto Amazon UK. Uh, and War and Zone will be out very soon. I'm selling them for three bucks, whatever that is in pounds. Let me um, just have a, I'm going to type it in there now, Amazon. Because that's, it's always been, though, Jeff, you're, you're hitting nails on the head here. Of course, you'll always see, you know, like, you go to FF Signal and there's, like, a little review of a book there. And you think, oh, I'll get myself that. And it's just not over here on UK, you know, Kindle format, you know, and you just got to, and I'll tell you which one was a great example, and I'm sure Scalzi wrote about it, but his red shirts was out everywhere. You know, it was it, delayed. It was delayed in Territory A, right? Yes. You, you guys had to wait. That's because you're second-class citizens, Tony. <laughs> second-class citizens global market. Let's just see. Jeff Carlson on, because I'll buy that straight away there, to be quite honest. Yeah, so fun. now Long long Eyes is there. Let's have a look here back. Kindle, there's Plague Year. Now, wait on. I've got Plague Zone and Plague War at Plague Year. And more choice. I mean, this just came out like a couple of days ago. So you're right here on the cutting edge, man. They haven't collated everything yet. Uh, type, you have to go to the Kindle, the Kindle store and then type in Plague Year and it should pop up along with uh, all the other books named by that name now. Um, or if you, if you get real crazy, if you type in Plague Year, the author's cut, because here's what happened, man. I mean, I've learned so much, you know, in craft since writing that first novel Going back through it just to correct some typos and some, you know, some errata, some little details here and there. Uh, to be honest with you, I couldn't believe I'd ever sold the book. I, I was like, some of these transitions are just absolute dreck. And some of the descriptive passages of the action sequences, I'm like, I can't even tell which way the characters are running. And so it ended up becoming like a two month, you know, investment of my time. And I was a lot of fun to go back. I just started ripping things apart. And I went back and I added material here and there. I'm like, some of the stuff that I always talk about in interviews about how, you know, these, these stories, they're full of helicopter chases and, you know, nuclear missile strikes and bug swarms and people running around screaming, shooting each other, which is just totally fun, you know, and hot sex with your last dying breath at the end of the world. Um, but for me, these books were always really about just the human strength and the human character, you know, like our ingenuity and our grit and our loyalty in our, our ability to imagine our way out of any corner. If I, as me as the writer, I can back you into the darkest, most horrible corner and human beings can still think their way out of that box. But I realized going back through the book that some of that stuff wasn't actually on the page. There's a lot of subtext in Plague Year. 
And that's one reason why it's done so well. Some people really, really respond to that. And then some people were like, I just didn't get it. I mean, if you look at the reviews on Amazon UK for Plague a lot of people gave it one and two stars. I didn't care about the characters. And as a writer, I've come a long way. I'm like, you know, I need to be a little more upfront with some of this stuff. And I can't just have my character sitting on his mountaintop brooding and feeling guilty about, you know, having to whack the guy next to him so they could stay alive. Um, you know, he needs to have an internal monologue, even if it's just for two sentences or a paragraph. And if you salt in that kind of stuff there, but it has to be on the page. If you salt that stuff in throughout the book, it actually becomes a different story. The, I mean, it's a, it's a dark story, dude. I mean, it's, you know, and it's Donner party everywhere. We're killing and eating each other to stay alive. It's not Mary Poppins, <laughs> but, but it's about, it's about, our internal strength and all the things that led us to become, you know, you know, the top of the food chain and just, just being smart and clever and fierce and defiant. I love that stuff about people. And so, you know, the, the plague year became 20 pages longer and that was even after cutting some stuff that just, I'm like, this is just so obscure. Well, this is so obscure. I've just Sorry, go ahead. I've just bought it there, Jeff. One pound ninety three, and I've so I've just clicked on and, and bought that with me one click subscription. So I've got I've got myself that plague here. But I tell you what, you'll have to wait because I'm reading um, Moorcock's Byzantium. What do you call it? Byzantium. You know the is uh, is for um, Payet collection. There you go. And that's just come on the Kindle as well because I think something like again like Moorcock, the the backlog of like stuff he's got that he could you know get up on on Kindle and you know all the other ones. Yeah, but like, and you put it up and you can make it you can make it very affordable. You know, so it's not a, it's not a big risk for people. Uh, and so yes, yeah, so we're we're in the process. I'm hoping to have uh, the sequel Plague War up in like a week, and then Plague Zone up the week after that. Why well, not? I was going to tell you, uh, I had uh, this crazy fan. I want to say he was in Australia. I haven't heard from him for a couple of years. He was just raving on the internet, you know, and attacking Kindle and saying, you know, why can't I buy Plague Year on Amazon UK? You know, this is an outrage. And he was sending me emails, which is awesome, dude. I love it when people are that, you know, passionate about it. And when he's like, you know, I'm going to have to pay, you know, 25, you know, Australian dollars to have this shipped to me in you know, the Dead Tree Edition. I bought my Kindle. You know, I want I want this file, but it's you know it's proprietary with the territory A and stuff, and and I'm gonna have to hack in and pirate it and all this kind of stuff, and and so I, I thought you know I was like, geez, I'm like, let's just give the man what he wants, um, and again, there's no reason why these shouldn't be available, but again, instead of just dumping the original manuscript up there, I went back and I mean, between the three books, I'm gonna it took way more time than I thought it was going to. I probably spent about four months now uh, reworking the trilogy, but they're much better. And, of course, in my dreams, there'll be this, you know, cross-Atlantic, you know, debate in the science fiction fandom, you know, saying all the, the, you know, the new author's cut editions are far superior to the original. And the Americans will be like, oh, no, the originals really struck the right emotional tone for me. And, and uh, you know, and then and someday, someday the rights will revert to me and I'll be able to just put my own editions up for sale in North America. And that'll be uh, – It'd be kind of cool. So that was just that was only one of my deep thoughts, Tony. No, that's hey. Listen, I tell you, here's a deep thought. Then, see, you push everything of your back history to the side. No, push all, get it all away, all the frozen sky. Put all that. What what you're working on now? Then, is there anything like you say? If that's taking you four months, that must be pretty. You know, like you say, you, you need cash to survive. You, you've got family, you've got kids. If you're working on old stuff, and that's taking up four months of your time, are you working on something new there now or not? Or isn't that, isn't that crazy, though? Yeah, I actually I thought I was going to be able to get through like all three books in about two weeks. I remember telling my wife, oh, I'm, I'm going to budget two weeks for this. And I just got into it. I mean, they're, they're pretty cool stories, too. It's got the neat environment. You know, you got to be up on the mountaintops. And, 
the whole geopolitical map's been ripped apart. And it's just this big, sprawling, epic, you know, disaster thriller. And I, I mean, I haven't read the books in a really, really long time. I mean, you know, from the time that I wrote the, the rough draft of Plague Year to having gone through Final Galleys with Penguin, I mean, I had read Plague Year 40 times, you know, <laughs> going, going through it. And I was going to barf if I had to read that book again. So, I mean, when it finally came out in print, and it was awesome, dude. I mean, it was, you know, front of store and airports and just big promotion, and it did very well, and it was super exciting. I didn't read the book again. You know, it was really nice to hold it in my hands and be like, you know, it's my first novel. I almost love you more than my children. Um, but I didn't read the damn thing because I already read it 40 times. But so again, it's been, I mean, I finished that book in like early, early 2006. So it's been, you know, a good six odd years. And so going back through, it was a little bit of the whole, you know, Alice in the Looking Glass thing and looking back and you, cause you can see a lot of yourself in your writing and like the choices that you made and like the, you know, the emotional, you know, points, the beats that you wanted to make with the characters. And so anyway, um, I've got a Bob Mayer uh, anecdote for you. Bob Mayer, you know, wrote like the Area 51 series, uh, Atlantis, just, you know, uh, Green Berets, just very, very successful, you know, sci-fi and tech thriller kind of guy. And uh, sometimes like I want to be like Bob Mayer and I want to be older, man. I mean, my backlist is just these three Plague Year novels. Well, Bob's gone. Can I say ape shit on your show, Tony? No, you certainly can. (laughs) Ape shit! Bob has gone ape shit on on his backlist, and he's you know he's dumped. I mean, is it thirty books and like thirty titles? Just and he's just because all the rights are his again. He's just uploaded them all in. So now I'm competing with this guy. You know, this giant in the field has been you know writing as long as I've been alive. And you say Moorcock. I mean, there's all these guys that have all these just backlists, and they're all furiously getting their stuff. You know, po- kind of polished and converted and uploaded and there's just this huge industry that's going on and so yeah there's poor little there's poor little old jeff carlson trying to compete with all of this in the meantime but see but once that book is up there for sale i wanted it to be as good as it could possibly be i didn't want to just upload the original because again i just learned so much in like the five books that i've written between now and then but yeah believe me man i am absolutely dying to be done um, I'm, I'm kind of about halfway done through Plague Zone right now, um, and I could talk about that for another hour or two. Um, but uh, you know, it, there's, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, these are pretty good books. These are cool. These are just cool end of the world, you know, thrillers. Uh, and I'm ready to be done with them as the, you know, as the craftsman and move on to my new stuff. So I got a, a few things on my on my plate. Well, one of my my other deep thought for you um, was is that Amazon, of course, is trying to take over the the world. And there's a lot of booksellers and publishers and they're all very upset with Amazon and Amazon's undercutting the market and Amazon's changing the market and Amazon's, you know, taking away the gatekeepers and unleashing the floodgates. And, you know, in the U.S., we've got the Department of Justice, you know, in looking at hearings with the big six and Apple and Kindle and all this stuff and Amazon. And, and um, well, one of the things that uh, Amazon has done in just the last couple of years now is they've actually become publishers. I don't just mean they're allowing people to self publish on Kindle. I mean, they have actual, an actual publishing wing. Now they're based in Seattle. Um, and they're headhunting a lot of the top guys out in New York. Uh, I won't, I won't give you any names or, or even publisher names, but, uh, editors, publicists, you know, copy editors, just, you know, interior design cover, just all this stuff. And they're, they're headhunting talent like crazy. And partly that's because Amazon is one of the most flush with cash companies in the U.S., if not the world right now. 
um, whereas New York is really foundering. And I am not the a lot of people just a couple years ago, it's kind of died down. But a couple years ago, a lot of people were just frothing at the mouth. And because because there's a lot of pent up frustration and rejection and, and you know, struggle and all, all of the great stuff that makes great storytelling. But when the e-revolution really started to hit its stride just a couple years ago, a lot of people were acting like it was a religion. And you had to either be an indie, you know, freedom fighter, or you were a hidebound dinosaur traditionalist who was going to die. Uh, I believe that traditional publishing does have its place and that it will survive. And, dude, I want to have a stack of books in Costco. That's when you've arrived. You know, you walk into, like, these big box stores like Walmart or Target in the U.S., and they've got, you know, this giant freaking stack of, like, 100 copies of your book. That's a huge investment for these guys in New York just to just – you know, get that backing behind you. That's when you've arrived. Now, that's not to say that there aren't many other different avenues to success now, and that's cool. There's no reason in the world why, as a working writer, you can't be doing some independent self-publishing stuff and working with you know honest to goodness publishers. In fact, you know, if you're smart, you're doing a combination of both because nobody knows which way the wind is blowing right now. I mean, some people tell you it's going to be, I, you know, I live in you know, Northern California near San Jose. I know a lot of dot comers and they'll tell you it's going to be 100% digital in the next five to 10 years. But looking back to like the early 90s, man, there were people telling you that the e-revolution was coming in a year or two. Uh, and that was back in like 1991, 92, 96. And it didn't happen. Nobody knows what's really going on. I think there's going to be a place for digital and print um, probably for our lifetimes, although the print is going to become more and more costly. You're already starting to see uh, almost a complete lack, not a complete lack, but you're starting to see a huge dearth in mass market paperbacks. It's not cost effective. There's either going to be these gorgeous hardcovers or it's going to be digital. And uh, what the hell am I talking about, Tony? I know what I was talking about. Um, so, yeah, so uh, recently completed another novel, and it's, it's, uh, my, it's my biggest and best yet. It's just a big, fat – if you were to print it out instead of looking at it at a computer as electrons, even in electrons, it's very, very <laughs> it's big, fat. fat electrons. <laughs> um, you know, and like I said, I mean, I'm, a, I'm actually a pretty happy guy. I've got this gorgeous family. We're healthy, knock on wood. We're intelligent. We work hard. We're doing pretty well in the world. And I keep writing like these horrible end of the world, everybody running around screaming, um, you know, thrillers. And again, that's partly because uh, Jeff, Jeff had an unhappy childhood. It's because Jeff had an unhappy childhood. And I, you know, I felt like I had to kind of uh, scrap a little bit, um, you know, to grow up to be an adult. And that's probably why it's this. So it's, it's a personal thing with me. But I think it's really it's just fascinating how people, I mean, really, that's, I mean, that's why we're here at all. I mean, our species would have died off hundreds of thousands of years ago if we didn't have that drive and that hunger and the, just, you know, they call it the nomad gene, the curiosity, the urge to explore and, and you know, and identify and overcome any hurdles that we're presented with. And if we don't have any hurdles in front of us, we will manufacture them ourselves. And I find that dichotomy just fascinating, dude. Like if you look at American politics right now, it's just total Roman empire. We became the only superpower on the face of the planet. And so we turned inward and we started bickering with each other over just the, like the stupidest goddamn things. Like what kind of, what kind of civilized country isn't interested in educating its children? And we could talk about this for five hours too, dude. It's because the Bush administration deliberately bankrupted our country with a meaningless war, trillions of dollars pissed away so we no longer are able to afford to pay teachers or have kids in school. And that's because they wanted a large 
uneducated population because somebody, Tony, has to be in Burger King flipping those burgers and somebody has to be in Walmart running that register. You want to have a large, uneducated, lower middle class. Let's be let's be tasteful about it. Uh, and I think that's deliberate, dude. That's a science fiction story waiting to happen right there. Um, so anyway, what was I talking about again? <laughs> I love this Amazon. And so, uh, so I wrote, so yeah, so we'll, we'll manufacture our own problems. So I, 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 I'm a happy guy, healthy dude, beautiful family, knock on wood. And I keep writing these crazy, you know, end of the world. It's all going to die unless we can figure our way out of this, out of this corner. Um, and we sold it to 47 North, which is the new science fiction fantasy imprint of Amazon. Now, the only downside is, is you will not be able to buy this book on Nook or Kobo, or Sony e-reader, or whatever. Uh, there will also be limited print distribution in stores, and that's because Barnes & Noble is hanging on tooth and nail and doesn't want to give revenue to Amazon, even if Barnes & Noble makes money by selling their books. There will be a print edition. Uh, um, there will be a, a lovely trade paperback and potentially a collector's hardcover, too. That's still in the works. The book will be out in July. Uh, the main thing, of course, is Kindle. Now, as a working writer... Um, it's just, I mean, first of all, uh, the money up front is almost more than I was paid for the entire Plague Year trilogy by Penguin. Uh, second of all, uh, 47 North and, you know, Kindle, it's their ballpark and they've got anywhere from 50 to 70% of the ebook market, depending on who you talk to. Um, and that's because, you know, iPad, iPhone, iTouch, uh, I talk to a lot of people, get a lot of fan mail, Something, I, I don't know, I'm just going to make up a number. Something like 80% of all the Mac people are running a Kindle app on their iPad, iPhone, iTouch. So it's not just people who own Kindles. It's also the whole iCrowd. They're buying their books off of Kindle. Uh, and I can tell you, of those 40,000 copies of the original short story, The Frozen Sky, that we sold, 39,000 of them were on Kindle. 39,000 and change. I sold something like 600 on Nook and Kobo. That's not, it's not like, that's not a typo, dude. 39,600. So, um, so, you know, for me to say, okay, we're going to give up, you know, the slice of the pilots, Nook and Kobo and Sony and whatnot, and yet be in Kindle's ballpark as one of Kindle's people. And, you know, you get on the website and there's the recommendations. Well, I, you know, Jeff Carlson's next novel is going to be one of them. So we're just super excited, obviously. Uh, it's gonna be a pretty, it's be a pretty big deal for me. Uh, and so again, this is um, this is the mix between trying to do it independent and trying to stay traditional. It's a new traditional. My agent was involved. Uh, we could talk about this for an hour or two in Book Expo America and people sitting down, you know, with meetings between agents and editors and brokering and negotiating. Uh, and then a lot of that, of course, was just my sales record as an independent. With the frozies, yeah, you say, hey, you see, it's Jeff sold 40,000 copies of this short story. I mean, Tony, that's not a staggering number. There's people that are selling hundreds of thousands of copies of stuff. Um, but 40,000, I mean, that's, that's well above the norm. And that's a track record. You say, okay, hey, you know, uh, and they, uh, you know, anyway, it was, just, it was just super exciting. And so, I, you know, I have a new editor and we're back and forth thing and, you know, developing the book, changing a couple little things. And, uh, and it's just, it's an exciting time, man. It's an exciting time to be a working writer. He has, a, he has, Jeff, he has a final question then, just to kind of to, to sweep everything. If you were given the chance then, 
to have like a the way you're going there now, just exactly the way you're doing now. You're, you're making your living out of riding, or you turn up the next day, you could have this kind of not jet set lifestyle, but a very comfortable lifestyle doing a nine to five job. What would I do? Yes. Well, you know, I, I am who I am. You know, it's funny. My, my wife's last boyfriend before, before I came along, it just rocked her world, man. He was a before, nice, he was a nice guy. Him. I'm sure. I'm sure I've met him. I'm sure he was tall. People <laughs> had a hair and yeah, he, he was, he was kind of goofy looking. If yeah. His name was Jeff too, but he looks like a Toby to me. And I apologize to any Tobys out there, but Toby's kind of like a goofy name in America, like Melvin. Okay. And so I've always called this guy Toby. Um, and, uh, and, and he was well off, man. He had, um, you know, a pretty good, uh, inheritance, you know, like a trust fund and he didn't want to be a banker, but he was going to be something like that. He was going to be like some hedge fund manager, accountant guy, just real, you know, vanilla mainstream. Um, but you know, but he didn't rock her world, Tony. Whereas I'm like this, I'm a, I'm a rebel Dottie. I'm a loner. And, um, and I'm out there on the edge and neither of us ever imagined that it would be just such a long, painful haul. I mean, she's like the most patient and supportive individual you could possibly imagine. I mean, we were married for, well, we actually came back from our honeymoon and I had my first acceptance letter for a short story to a magazine that you could actually find in stores. There was always just enough, you know, incentive and encouragement and acceptance letters coming in that I kept following it along. And then we finally sold, you know, the first novel and, and I, you know, it's worked out pretty well for us, but it's kind of hand to mouth sometimes, man. Um, you know, I've had a couple of really, really good years. And then we've also had, I mean, it's part of the global economy just totally tanked. We've had a couple of bad years where we're like, you know, you know, what the hell was I thinking? I'm going to grow up to be a writer. I mean, do you know how just stupid that is? I mean, writers are barely one notch above musicians. And again, I apologize to any musicians I know out there, but the musicians I know are always, they're just scrapping along, man. They're, you know, they, they, they got to go play at weddings and stuff just to just, you know, make a buck. It's brutal out there. Although they're starting to, you know, you get into iTunes and you're selling your, selling your songs individually as short stories. I know some guys that are having some success. And I just know a lot of people are struggling, man. It's tough. Um, so I don't know, man. I mean, the, the ups and the downs, uh, but it's just, it's so gratifying. I mean, what it really comes, I'm going to steal this from Joe Haldeman. What it really comes down to in the end, it's super exciting, man, to see your books in stores or to think, oh my God, I'm going to get like this just massive promotion campaign from 47 North and we're going to sell, you know, 50,000 copies in the first year. And maybe I will actually be able to pay down some of our debt and maybe pay somebody to come, you know, fix the goddamn floor as opposed to me, you know, banging away at it myself. That would be awesome. Um, you know, when I, you know, I've been shortlisted for a couple of awards and that's just like, you know, I get like email from random people. Although it's been like two weeks since any random person has emailed me, man. It's just so awesome to get like a random email from a random person around the world saying, Hey, I, I read your book and I really liked it, you know, or, you know, and what was happening in chapter 17 with, you know, character A's internal monologue and their personal development. And I didn't quite understand that, but the story really worked for me in the end. Just stuff like that's cool, man. I mean, I, I, I mean, you can tell, I'm basically like a caged animal, Tony. When I get to talk to a real life, my job description, this is like my standard joke now. My job description is that I sit alone in a room with my laptop listening to the voices in my head. I mean, this is just, this is my job. And it's, it's mostly, it's fine. I got a lot of voices in my head. I like listening to the voices in my head. I'm, I'm pretty good at it. 
Um, so I kind of come around about again. I mean, all these things are totally awesome. Fan mail, just totally just kick ass. Seeing your books in stores, just awesome. You know, just all this stuff. It's just, it's really gratifying. But Joe Haldman, the master that he is, once said, and, and I've always kind of hung on to this, it comes back to the work. You have to enjoy the work because it is lonely. You are just alone in that room day after day. And there's no, you know, my wife works in the corporate world. They just say, hey, you know, here's a stack of paperwork every day. Do this. Um, I'm, you know, I'm my own boss, but I also have to be my own. I got to get up every day and, and find, you know, the drive and, and just, you know, and some days are tough. You know, you've ever seen the 78 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Jeff Goldblum is the, uh, the tortured writer and, and he's at some, you know, goddamn 70s, you know, mixer and he's complaining. So he's like, sometimes it takes me like a week to write just six words. And she's like, six words? It's easy to write six words. And he's like, it's not, it's not. And someone comes along. He's like, you don't have to justify yourself to, to her. And uh, I mean, I have days like that where I write like one sentence and, and, it, and it sucks. And I spend the whole day, man. I'm there for six freaking hours at the computer writing one sentence. And, you know, or that I have days, you know, you write like two, three, four thousand words. You're like, oh, man, I'm a genius. And it, it comes back to the work. You have to enjoy the work and like that sense of putting a puzzle together or playing a really good game of chess. There's that there's that just gratification when it goes well. It's really well. And when it's tough, it's tough. You know, my, my poor wife has to come home and, and I'm like, oh God, I'm, in, I'm just such a, I just can't do anything. I'm just so, just shoot me now. I should have been a banker. And then she comes home and I'm bouncing around and I, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, I had a great, I had two great days in a row. You know, I'm like, this is what I was destined to do. This is my destiny. I'm, I'm the greatest writer that ever lived. And then she comes back and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, it was kind of okay today. It was sort of a workmanlike day today. You know, I kind of just slogged through it. I got some work done. How are you? And uh, so I don't know, man, it's tough to say. I mean, it it sure would be nice to to have like a steady paycheck. I mean, thank God for my wife, man. You know, she has health benefits and stock options and, and, you know, like a a paycheck and a Christmas bonus and stuff. I don't get any of that, dude. My income's all over the map. You know, we have, uh, you know, we have months where we're like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, we can pay down some of the debt we've been racking up because Jeff isn't making a steady, a steady buck. Uh, And then we have, you know, we have those months where I'm not making a steady buck. We're like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, and I'm 43, man. It's a little, little way. I should have been in advertising. I probably would have been a really, really good advertising, you know, copywriter guy. But I spurned that idea because I was going to go out and, and make my mark. And, and I don't know. What was the question? You, no, listen, you are making your mark. Jeff, honestly, don't you dare stop writing. Bloody hell. Listen, Jeff, it has been fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for giving me, you know, Top Sider and all the other stories as well. Good luck, honestly, good luck in everything you do, sir. My pleasure, man, my pleasure. Yeah, all you, all you crazy people out there in Territory A, which is the UK, look out for the, uh, the new Plague Year stuff. If you haven't read them, it's bigger, it's better, it's cheaper, it's exciting. Well, yeah, I'm in uh, just all kinds of new stuff. Frozen Sky, the new book in July is called Interrupt. There'll be all kinds of nonsense about it on my blog uh, but yeah tony thanks for letting me you know kind of come outside so to speak and talk to real live people <laughs> i know it's been lovely honestly jeff you take care thank you so much there you go <laughs> what a guy 100 mile an hour <laughs> jeff thank you so much what honestly what a star thank you i've put if you go on the site there, you can I've put Frozen Skies, novel Frozen Sky. I'll put all the links so you can get it in Kindle, Nook, Kubo, and Audible as well. 
And like I say, there's a, there's a link to Jeff's site as well, so please pop over there. And do treat yourself to Frozen Sky by Jeff Carlson. Do you know what I mean? That universe is just fantastic. And Amy just makes it believable. Do you know what I mean? Brilliant. Amy, Jeff, thank you so much. That is the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Please, if you want, you know, yes, this, this time of year where the hat comes off, you know what I mean, this, t- this time of year, this time of week, where the hat comes off, and if you want to donate, if you want to subscribe, keep this old girl going. We're free, always free, but, you know, we do like to have support. That would be fantastic. And don't forget my Spider Robinson, little uh, How to Write Science Fiction with Spider Robinson, coming the 26th of January. Until next week, I would just like to see you. Good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.